Hello, I want to welcome you to the Point Church Alberta Campus Sunday Preaching Podcast. My name is Josh Heisler, and I'm the Alberta Campus Pastor. We strongly believe in the expositional preaching of God's Word, which works to build our faith and grow us up in Christ. Our prayer is that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join us as we get to the point. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them up to Hebrews chapter 6? Hebrews chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one of those hardback black Bibles from under your chair. And if you're using one of those, you'll want to turn to page 1004. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews, which we've entitled, Jesus is Better. And as we pick up from where we left off last week, it will be helpful for you to remember that as we looked at the first half of chapter 6 last week, we encountered a very serious warning. And that warning was meant to be an encouragement. It was meant to help us along as we go to follow Christ. So uh, in a lot of ways, though, that warning was also kind of a, a twofold warning. And so as we think about that warning, the first half of that warning was a call urging us not to resist the invitation to come follow Christ because that invitation may be withdrawn. Now, that's a pretty serious warning, uh, and, and as we thought about that, the, the application that we found was, was that we needed to, to repent. Like, don't wait until tomorrow to put off your decision to follow Christ. If you recognize that you need to repent of your sin, you need to do it now because we don't know the future. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know if this is our last opportunity to come to saving repentance. So that was our first application out of that twofold warning. But the second half of that warning was this warning not to have a false assurance, a false security of your salvation. And as we considered the second half of that warning what, and what its application was, what we found was an encouragement to endure. In verses 9 through 12, if you want to look there as you're, you're turning there in chapter 6, our author painted a picture to help us see what true faith, what, what genuine salvation looks like. And what we saw was that true faith is faith, faith that endures to the end. We saw that you can be sure of your salvation if it endures to the end. If you continue to follow Christ, if you continue to grow in Christ, if you continue to press on to maturity in Christ. But today, as we pick up where we left off last week in our letter, our author is going to answer a question that might have come up as you considered that application from the second half of last week's warning. Because if you can be sure of your salvation, that it's genuine because you endure to the end, the natural question that flows out of that is, well, how do I endure to the end? How do I endure to the end? Well, good news. As we continue in the second half of chapter 6, our author is going to answer that question. So let's dive into this. Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. 
We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at your word today and we look for the answer to this question of how we endure to the end, God, I ask that you would work on us. God, I ask that you would help us to see that we can rely on your promises because you keep your promises, because you're faithful to keep your word. God, I ask that you would work on us, open our hearts and our ears and our eyes to receive, understand, and apply your your word to us, that this word would do a work in us that would change us as we walk out of here. God, do your thing as we listen to your word today. If there's somebody here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, we ask that today would be the day that they would come to that saving repentance we just talked about, that they would come to find the freedom that is available in your Son. God, do something for us today. We ask this. We're we're desperate for it. It's in your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Amen. Not long after Tam and I got married, I inherited my grandfather's old fishing boat. It was an old boat. There wasn't much to it, um, but it was a boat to have. It was like 17 feet long. It was ugly green, like really, like think of an, like uglier than this color, green, ugly green boat. Uh, It was a glass ply. It had an old 55 uh, Johnson outboard on the back of it that ran some of the time. And so I I was happy to have, it was a free boat, right? So we got that boat and I did what I could to clean it up. I, I put new carpet in the boat and washed and waxed it. My dad and I even got underneath and, and redid some of the fiberglass on the keel that had been damaged. And once that was taken care of, we got some water skis, a tube, some tow lines, that sort of stuff, life jackets. And and we had a pretty good toy to go play out in in the lake with during the summer, right? In Washington State, you get like three weeks. And and we had a great toy to play in the summer with. It was awesome, and it was free. It cost me nothing uh, when it ran. But anyway, so in the summer of 2004, we went on a family vacation over to eastern Washington to Banks Lake. Katie was still a baby, but we took that lake and the whole family went over there and we were camping and playing on the lake, fishing and, and doing all kinds of water activities and all that. And we, we had a lot of fun. But on one of the last days of our trip over there, my cousin Pete and I decided to go out fishing. We, we went out in the boat. We found a place that looked good. I shut off the motor. I threw the anchor over the, the side of the boat. And, and because of where we were at in the lake, I tied off the boat on one of the stern cleats on the boat there. And we dropped our lines and started fishing. Now, after some time of catching nothing, because I am a terrible fisherman, uh, we decided it was time to go find a new spot. So we pulled up our fishing lines. I jumped up to the front of the boat, started the motor, went full throttle from right where we were at. And it wasn't for about 30 seconds that I realized we'd forgotten to haul the anchor. The anchor was still down behind us, and we realized that it was still down behind us because it wasn't down anymore. It was out behind us, like 50 or 60 feet, splashing in the waves like a fishing lure that you reel in too fast. Now, thankfully, the anchor didn't work properly. All we did is scare ourselves. But any of you who've spent any time in a boat know how important it is for an anchor to actually work properly. You know how important it is to have an anchor that when you set it, it holds you. And the best way to ensure that that anchor holds is to make sure it sets in the bottom as you're, you're putting it out. Am I right? And it's the same thing for us as Christians. If we want it to be, to be anchored, where we're anchored matters. 
It matters for us in our Christian life. So today, as we're talking about enduring in Christ, and we're looking at this text, my hope is that I'll be able to show you that where we anchor our faith, where we anchor our hope, it matters. And with that, I've got just one big takeaway for you. I've got one big idea that I want you to walk away with as we consider this text and we consider the question, how do we endure to the end? And that big idea is this. We will endure in Christ if we remain anchored to the truth of God's promises and to his faithfulness in keeping those promises. That's our big idea. That's what I want you to take away. If if you're taking notes, maybe write that down. We will endure in Christ if we remain anchored to the truth of God's promises and to his faithfulness in keeping those promises. Now, let's take a look at our text, and I'll show you where I'm getting that from. We're going to start at chapter 6, verse 13. The author writes, For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, as we begin to look at this text here and we begin this new paragraph, it will help us to remember that our author is continuing the discussion that he had last week in the verses that preceded this. And we know that because it starts with that word for, which is connecting verse 13 to the paragraph that came before. In in the previous paragraph, in verses 9 through 10, our author was telling his readers that even though he was giving them this serious warning, he had seen the fruit of genuine salvation in their lives. He knew that they were saved, and so he's pressing them to endure. In verse 11, he told them of his desire for them to have the full assurance of hope until the end because he wanted them, in verse 12, not to be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, he wanted them to endure. He wanted them to press on to the end like those who had come before. And so what he's doing here is he's pointing to a past example. These are Jewish Christians he's writing to, so he's, he's passing, pointing to someone in their past that they would know and, and they would recognize, and he's saying, hey, use this as a model for Christian endurance. He's pointing back to Abraham. He's pointing back to the account that Jason told us about as he did the scripture reading today. After God had commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son, after Abraham had obeyed and God had intervened, after Abraham sacrificed the ram that God had provided, God made a promise that we read there in Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17. He said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And our author is pointing back to this historic promise to help us see the security of God's promises, to help us see that God keeps his promises, that he's faithful to keep those promises. So back in Hebrews chapter 6, as as we've already read, he, he wrote, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. 
The promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 22 was a reiteration of the promise that he had made previously in Genesis 12. And when God made that promise, Abraham, he was already an old man, and he was still childless. He didn't have any kids. Now, eventually, it would become clear that that promise would be fulfilled by a son being born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age, which really did seem kind of impossible because of how old they were. But Abraham believed the promise, and eventually, Sarah did conceive, and they had a son, And then we come up to Genesis 22, and it becomes clear that the entire hope of God's promise to bless Abraham would be dependent on the offspring of his offspring. It would be dependent on Isaac himself. His son Isaac would lead to the fulfillment of God's promise, and the problem was God just told him to take Isaac and sacrifice him on the altar. Now, we'll know when we read in Hebrews 11 that Abraham had the kind of faith that he just assumed, hey, if I do this, if I obey God, God's just going to raise him back up anyway because he knew God would keep his promises. But what we're seeing in this moment in Genesis 22 is Abraham patiently, obediently, faithfully enduring. And in that obedience and faithfulness, as he endured, he received back his son, the hope of the promise. As Frederick Bruce put it, even though this was a long way off, even though the the full, complete fulfillment of God's promised Abraham was in the distant future, in the restoration to Abraham of the son upon whose survival the promise depended, Abraham did, in a very substantial sense, obtain the promise. But the security of that promise, the, the reason that Abraham could trust that promise was God himself. God swore by himself. And in verse 16, that's what our author is trying to highlight. He says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. Now, we see this all the time in our lives. In fact, we see it so often, we don't even realize that we're seeing it. We, we see people who go and they'll swear by something greater themselves. So they'll say something like, I'll swear on my mother's grave. Or I swear on my children's lives. Or, or if they're really trying to make a point, they'll be like, I swear on a stack of Bibles. Right? We see this kind of thing. We hear this thing all the time. But when we hear those kinds of statements from people, what, what's going on? What are they trying to do? What's the point they're trying to get across? They're working to give credence. They're working to give credibility, to give veracity and weight and certainty to that which they're about to say. They're pointing towards something sacred or something greater than themselves, and they're saying that what they're about to say is as trustworthy and true and sacred as the person or object on which they are going to swear. And that's what our author is telling us. And he's he's saying that when they do that, that oath becomes final. It becomes a lasting certification of what they've said. And that, too, is a practice that we follow to this day. Like, if you go to court, and you're going to testify in court, you'll raise your hand, and you'll swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We've seen the crime shows, right? We know what they're going to swear. And, And that oath that they make is enough to substantiate the truth claims they give in the court. Right? Or when I joined the Navy, as I became an officer in the Navy, I raised my right hand and I swore an oath. And when I swore that oath, my promise as I swore that oath was enough. And in that moment, I became an officer in the Navy. So our author is telling us that that's what God was doing. 
Take a look at verses 17 and 18. He says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, as, as we see that there and we think about this idea of God making an oath, has it ever occurred to you that God didn't have to make an oath? He didn't have to swear that he would do something. He said he would do it, and that was enough. He could have just said one more time, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and that would have been enough. But still, even though he didn't have to make this oath, he did. He wanted it to be perfectly clear. He wanted anyone who would receive his promise to be certain about the fact that he had determined to do something, and if he had determined to do something, he would do it. So he doubled down. He gave two unchangeable things for us to hold on to. First, he said he'd do it. He said, I am going to bless you. And since we know that God can't lie, it's not possible for God to lie. If he says he's going to do something, then we know he's going to do it. But second, just to add weight to the promise he was making, just to ensure there was no doubt allowed to creep in, God gave an oath. He swore by his own glory and majesty and power that he would bless Abraham. And the part that we need to let sink in as we consider this here is that that oath was for more than just Abraham. Are you, are you seeing that in the text? Right there in the middle of verse 18, our author is telling us that God did this for us. He made this oath for us. He says, that, he says that God said he'd bless Abraham and he backed it up with an oath for our sake. He did these two things so that we who have fled for refuge, that's you and me. We who are living in this world that's broken by sin, we who are refugees in this world, who encounter persecution, who encounter setbacks, who encounter discouragement and encounter trials, we who are seeking to endure in Christ, he did it for us. He did it so that we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God made these promises to Abraham so that we, here in Alberta in 2021, think about that, so that we might be encouraged to endure. God wanted us to see that the promises he makes are as sure and everlasting as he is. He wanted us to see that his promises are unchanging because he is unchanging. He wanted us to see that when he makes a promise, he'll keep it that what he purposes to do, he will accomplish, which is why the, his promise can serve as an anchor for our soul. God's promises are sure. His promises are true. We can hold on to them. They're the anchor that will enable us to endure. If we want to endure to the end, then we need to anchor ourselves to the truth of God's promises and to his faithfulness in keeping those promises. That's what this historic example of Abraham is meant to show us. It's meant to remind us to hold on tight to God's promises. 
And we know that because of how our author concludes the paragraph in verses 19 and 20. Take a look. He's, he's been telling us about God's faithfulness in keeping his promises, and he's pointing to the example of how God kept his promise to Abraham. And as he's doing that, he's also showing us how God's promise to Abraham was a promise kept for us. Because in Jesus, that promise from Genesis twenty-two eighteen, when God said, in your offspring, in Abraham's offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In Jesus, that promise was kept. If you were to flip over to your Bible to the very beginning of the New Testament, to chapter one of Matthew, you would read of the genealogy of God's promised Messiah. And that genealogy begins with Abraham. And from there, you're gonna encounter a lot of big names. You'll, you'll see Isaac and Jacob. You'll see David, Solomon, Josiah. But the last name in that genealogy is Jesus. Jesus was the offspring of Abraham through whom all the earth, every tribe and tongue and nation would be blessed. Jesus was the final fulfillment of God's promise. And because he's the final fulfillment of his promise, we have the sure and steadfast anchor that we need. Verses 19 and 20 tell us that. So, so take a look. Our author writes, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, in the weeks to come, we're gonna spend some time talking about Melchizedek. We'll come back to him. But for now, what I want to highlight for you, what I want you to understand is this double imagery that our author is using right here. In verse 19, he's telling us that we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul and a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The, the first part of that imagery that we're seeing there is the picture of an anchor. Now, now when I was fishing out in my granddad's boat, the, the anchor I used completely failed me because I hadn't set it properly. But if I had, as I accelerated in the boat, the most likely thing that would have happened is that the boat would have come to an immediate and probably violent stop, or it would have torn the back of the boat off. Right? One of those two things would have happened. Why? Because an anchor is intended to be immovable. An anchor is intended to lock us in one spot. The whole idea is that it keeps us in the exact place that we're supposed to be. And so what we're seeing here is that we have a hope that is immovable. It's a hope that keeps us where we're supposed to be. It's a hope that helps us to endure. That's the first part of this imagery we're seeing there in verse 19. But the second part of the imagery shows us exactly where that anchor, where that hope is located. It's entered into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, for the Jewish Christians who were reading this letter when they, they originally received it, this imagery would have been abundantly clear. Instantaneously, they would have known that they were talking about the Holy of Holies, the most sacred portion of the sanctuary of the temple that was cut off from the rest of the temple by a very thick, heavy curtain. But keep in mind that, that the temple on earth was meant to be a shadow. It was meant to point them to something greater. It was meant to point them to the heavenly temple, to God's very throne room. And here, that's what this imagery is pointing to. It's pointing to the heavenly holy of holies where God himself resides. 
And what we're seeing is that our hope is anchored squarely in God's throne room with God. And it's anchored there because that's where Jesus is. Jesus, who was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, reminds us of God's faithfulness to keep his promises. But there's more to it than just that. Because Jesus is there as our forerunner. Now, that's not a word we use very often. A forerunner is someone who goes ahead in order to prepare the way, in order to announce to the arrival of someone else. So what we're seeing is that Jesus is there in the throne room of heaven. He's there with God, and he's there to prepare a way for us. He's there to get heaven ready for us to be there with him, which is another reason why our hope is immovable. Jesus is the fulfillment of one of God's promises, and he's there in heaven, glorified, having defeated sin and death, and he's there preparing a place for us as the guarantee of another hope, of another one of God's promises. That's what our author is helping us to see right here. That's the hope that we're anchored to. It's the truth of God's promises and his faithfulness in keeping those promises. How are we going to endure to the end? We will endure if we remain anchored to the truth of God's promises and to his faithfulness in keeping those promises. That's, that's the big idea that our author is working to help us understand in this text today. But if we can just get really practical for a second, like that's, that's the head knowledge. That's, that's our head takeaway from this text. But I'd like to go from an academic concept that we've got into our head to a very practical application that we can use day by day because I can give you a quasi-memorable, and I'm not saying this is memorable, but a quasi-memorable saying like we will endure in Christ if we remain anchored to the truth of God's promises and to his faithfulness in keeping those promises. I can give you something like what's on the screens here, but I'm, I'm not really sure how that's going to help us when we're actually actively struggling to endure. That, that statement is our head knowledge takeaway from this passage, but I also want to walk out of here with, with practical, everyday application from what we get from that statement. We're asking this question, how do I endure to the end? And I'm saying that we do that by staying anchored to God's promises and staying anchored to his faithfulness and keeping those promises. But the truth is we, we endure to the end by enduring through the middle. We endure to the end by enduring through the challenges, the, the, the troubles, the setbacks, all the things that we're going to encounter day by day in life. And all of those promises that God makes, they're a lot more useful to us if we remember them specifically. So maybe instead of asking, how do I endure to the end? We should ask, how do I endure? And then fill in the blank. Like, like, let me give you some examples here. Instead of asking, how do I endure to the end? Maybe we should ask, how do I endure when I'm tempted to sin? And in that moment, that sin is more alluring and attractive to me than Jesus. Oh, we just got real, right? But that's something we encounter. How do I endure in that? We endure in that by clinging to the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13 which says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Or, or maybe you're asking, how do I endure when I don't feel like God, or how do I endure when I feel like God doesn't hear me when I pray? You ever feel that way? It's hard to endure when you feel that way. We cling to the promise of 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's a promise I can cling to. If you're asking, how do I endure when I don't know what to do? You can cling to the promise of John 14, 16, where Jesus told his disciples, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Or you could cling to the promise of John 14, 26, 10 verses later, when Jesus said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Or maybe you're asking, how do I endure when I feel like I'm falling away from Jesus? Do you ever feel that way? Now, now we can answer that by anchoring to the promise that we saw last week in John chapter 6, verses 38 and 39, where Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If you're asking the question, how do I endure when I'm at my wit's end to the point where I don't even know what I should pray, like, like I'm so lost, I have no idea what I should pray, you can cling to the promise of Romans 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Or maybe you cling to the promise of Romans 8.34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, who indeed is interceding for us. That's how we endure to the end. Those are just a few examples. You endure to the end by clinging to the promises of God in his word. We endure by anchoring ourselves to those promises, knowing that God has shown over and over and over again that he keeps his promises. How do you endure when life is hard? When it isn't going your way, when, when you're discouraged, when you're overwhelmed by the state of the world? We turn to the promises of God in Scripture, which is why it's so incredibly important that you spend some time actually in the Word of God. It's, it's why we're giving you this F260. It's why we're reading Scripture in our service. You have to be in the Word. You have to be studying it and reading it and absorbing it and memorizing it. It's so important to have the word of God in your life because that's where his promises for us are located. And as you hear them, as you receive them, you can cling to them. And that's what we're seeing in today's text. We will endure in Christ if we remain anchored to the truth of God's promises and to his faithfulness in keeping those promises. So as we get ready to, to land the plane here, as I get ready to get you out of here on time, I want to ask you a question. Where are you anchored? Where is your anchor set? Is it set in your family, your job, your social status? Is it set in your ability to be a good person? Is it set in your own strength? If it's set in any of those things, those anchors, that's like my, the anchor on my granddad's boat. It's going to fail you. 
But if you place your anchor in God and in his promises and his faithfulness to keep those promises, you'll be immovable. You'll be able to endure. That's how we do it. That's what we're seeing today. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from The Point Church. If you would like more information about our church, or if you have any questions, you can find us online at tothepoint.church.